Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. Like nobody's business, so praise God for that. We appreciate the talent that God is sending and appreciate you being here. Hey, we have uh, chapter 12. If y'all want to go ahead and a few of you pass that out. I know we're in chapter 11, but I'm going to go ahead and give that to you. Trying to get a little bit ahead of the game for you. So if a few of y'all want to pass pass that out, everybody should be able to get a copy of that. But we're in chapter 11, around verse 7, I think we're going to jump right back in. So if a few of y'all want to help my brother there pass that out, that'd be great. All right. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being a part of the Bible study. I know that uh, sometimes it is hard for a lot of you. We've had a lot of our folks dispersed this week in camp, and camp's going amazing. We have about 70 kids, uh, but if you ask our leaders out here, it's, it's just as well, might as well be 700. Uh, they're everywhere, so uh, it's going great. But I want to say a big thank you to our leaders and our volunteers that are taking off a week of work to come out and be a leader. So y'all give them a big hand. How about that? They're amazing. Appreciate that so much. Kids having a great time. And thank you so much for being here. While they're passing that out, we are in chapter 11. Hopefully you have a chapter 11 handout. Uh, if not, we're going to throw some of it on the board. We may have some laying around here somewhere, but we've going to try to finish that up tonight. We're in verses uh, 7 and through 10. I want to go ahead and read those in chapter 11. Some really cool things happening, of course, in uh, this chapter with regard to the two witnesses. And, and so I'm going to start there. We probably have already talked about it, so I'm going to jump around. Most of these are already filled in for you. So I want to go ahead and jump into verses 7 through 10. It says, when they finish their testimony, talking about the two witnesses, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and will overcome them, underline that, and will kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, or Jerusalem, or Zion, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And I'll explain that to you in just a moment. Where also our Lord was crucified, then those from those peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell upon the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. It's interesting that the hatred that will come forth for these prophets, remember they'll be dressed in sackcloth, which speaks of prophetic, but they will also be demonstratively speaking, of course, of repentance. The sackcloth will illustrate that, that they're demonstrating repentance. It's more than just preaching the gospel. They're going to be demonstrating the act of repentance. Remember, that's kind of what John the Baptist looked like in his day when Jesus was on the scene, John the Baptist being Jesus's cousin through Elizabeth was in somewhat of the same type of attire, though it wasn't sackcloth, but he was a man wearing uh, clothing of skins, and his message was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's kind of the same message that they will be testifying to. And you will see that uh, in A there, that they'll make war against them, and they will overcome them. Now keep in mind, this is very important, that there will be people who will come against them for those other times preceding this moment, and they will not be able to hurt them. They'll have the seal of God upon their forehead. They will be set aside for this prophetic work. 
and people will try to come against them, but they'll be able to breathe fire from their mouth. We certainly believe that to be the power of God. God's given them that to suppress and to push back the the evilness of this world, the army, if you will, of the Antichrist. But it says that these two witnesses will likely be killed by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, this was introduced, of course, in Revelation 9 and 11, who most likely is Satan himself. Now, I remind you that there are three parts to this evil trinity, if you will. It's a perversion of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being one, triune God. There's Satan himself. There is, of course, the false prophet, and then there is the Antichrist. All one and the same, certainly in in agreement, but we believe this one that ascends out of this bottomless pit is Satan himself, but it says, and I wrote this down, their ministry of these two witnesses will not be cut short. It's very important that you understand the words when it says, when they have finished their testimony. Look in that text there. It says, when they finish their testimony, then the beast will ascend out of the bottomless pit. This is very important because I think it helps to understand that the same is true for our life, that there is a, there is an, a, a sovereign authority that is laying out the days of our life. We think about our life being cut short and things of that nature, but the truth of it is, is when we live in God's will for our life, our life is not going to be cut short. Now, we may look at that when we think of losing a loved one. Most certainly, we would agree that that feels like it was cut short because there's never could be enough time, right, with our loved ones. But the reality is, is the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. So there is no question there is a timeline that God has laid before us. But I love the fact that he inserts this into this verse that says when they finish their testimony, the devil does not have power over our lives. We are witnesses for the Lord and he will protect us until our testimony is finished. This passage also illustrates the difference between being a witness and giving a testimony. Witness is not something you do, it's something uh, that you are. I love what it says in Acts 1-8, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he says, you will be my witnesses. The word witness is martus, and it literally means to be a martyr. And of course, we've said this a thousand times, but I think we would, you know, be remiss to not say it again. Understand that Romans 12, you know, in 1 and 2, he says that he wants us to be a living sacrifice. He's not asking for us to die for him. Why? Because he's already died for us. But he does ask us to live for him and to be a testimony, be a witness, Look at B there, it says, as their dead bodies will lie in the streets of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, which our Lord was crucified. Now, we know this to be Jerusalem, but watch this. Look at there at the bottom. As Sodom is speaking of immorality. Sodom was a city of great immorality, unlike not known before. It was destroyed, of course, with fire and brimstone. But when he says Sodom, he's speaking of of a system of immorality. And then when he speaks, of course, of Egypt, he's speaking of oppression and of slavery. You know that from going back into, of course, the Old Testament before the Exodus. We realize that that was a time of 400 years of slavery from God's people and oppression. In fact, when they took the first Passover meal, one of the elements of that meal was the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs that they would take in that Passover meal, which is still true today, when they eat the bitter herbs, it's a reminder to them of the bitterness of oppression and slavery. So it's still very much a part of their lifestyle today to be reminded of where they came from. And of course, it says in that great city, we know that of course to be Jerusalem, but what he's really referring to is this term often applied to Babylon. Now Babylon, when you hear Babylon and you hear of the Roman Empire, these are two great 
systems that is referred to in an evil context, always. It's the headquarters, Babylon is the headquarters, of course, of the Antichrist. And I gave you some references there that you need to look back on there in Revelation. During the first three and a half years, Jerusalem's leadership is going to align themselves with this Antichrist. Remember, this guy's going to come on the scene for the first three and a half years. According to Daniel chapter 9, they're going to sign a seven-year peace treaty. It's going to be that between Palestine and between, of course, Israel, God's people, and God's enemies. There's going to be a lot of things that he's going to satisfy right off the bat. You're, going to, you're hearing of it now. You're hearing of this digital currency, right? You're hearing of this stuff now. Well, that's going to be implemented overnight. It's going to be literally implemented overnight. He'll be able to satisfy all the problems of the world in that one moment with that one seven-year peace treaty. For the first three and a half years, there's going to be all the things that we read about in the first you know, part of Revelation. There's going to be cosmic disturbances. There's going to be all these things. But truthfully, all hell doesn't break loose into what we call the Great Tribulation until the second three and a half years. And then, of course, he will break that peace treaty. He will enter into the great city. He will enter into the temple. He will sit on the temple and he will decide, de- declare himself the Messiah. It's called in Daniel and then again in Matthew 5 as the abomination of desolation. And then it says, of course, in C, that those who dwell upon the earth will rejoice over them, the death of those two. They'll make merry and send gifts to one another. The earth saw and rejoiced over the deaths of these two witnesses uh, because all these people and tribes and tongues of nations, it's this this idea of the mass media that we now have. I, I, it's interesting because I have heard it spoken about. I've actually taught upon it. And now to see that this finally for the first time can actually unfold in front of all people at the same time through mass media. I was talking to someone the other day who does a lot of missions in Africa. And I remember uh, the first time I ever went to Jamaica, the first time I ever went to Africa, it was very hard to communicate because they're cell phones were very, very expensive. And they were pretty much non-existent. Remember, we went to Africa, and to find a cell phone in Africa was just unheard of. Now, if you go into Africa, now you go into Botswana, you go into Zimbabwe, you go into Congo, you go into Liberia, you go anywhere now, everybody in every tribe has a cell phone. Not even kidding. You go to Jamaica, they probably have more cell phones per capita than we have in America. It's just, it's just very common. And I say that because for the first time, it talks about those who dwell upon the earth, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be able to see this happen and unfold at the same time. And now, unlike ever before, now are we set in stage for that to actually occur. That that alone should make us as children of God raise up our awareness and go, the time is nigh. Now, what does that do for us? Does it spark fear? No, it doesn't spark fear. It should spark in us the urgency to declare the gospel to every person, every kindred, every tongue, to the ends of the earth. That's our part in this story. Remember I told you this. Some of you may be joining for the first time. We are not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So right behind that point of the rapture, he comes back and he now tells us, he said, you've not been appointed under wrath. Daniel says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. All of these things that we've said since the beginning tells us that we should not be afraid of this, but rather should lean into it and realize the urgency behind testifying and being a witness and giving our testimony. They're overcomers by the blood of the lamb and the what? And the word of our testimony. And that, that's our hope. 
Every one of you under the sound of my voice, somebody told you about Jesus along the way. And the question is, are we telling others about him? And that's how that, that multiplication. If you look into the book of Acts, right before chapter 6, when the first deacons were installed, the Bible uses terminology like there was 2,000 added to the church. There was 5,000 added to the church. But the moment that there was an installation of co-laborers, which were deacons or diaconos, servants of the table, where now you've got the apostles preaching the word, and you've got deacons serving the table, and you've got administration of ministry going out into the masses of lay people, then it says this. And then it says, and then the gospel and the church grew uh, multiplied rapidly. It uses the word multiplied. So it went from addition to multiplication. That's how we're to do it. We're to, we don't talk a lot about that, right? But discipleship, disciple is mentioned 272 times in the book of, in, in the word of God. But yet Christian is only used twice. And you know, and I know, we can't be a disciple until we're a Christian, but where does he put the emphasis? When you become a child of God, be a disciple. How do you know that? The measuring rod of discipleship is if I take Larry and I am stealing him the word of God so much so that Larry goes and instills it in another, then and only then is he discipled. Do not let's make the mistake and think discipleship is the class you take at church. Discipleship is living out life as a child of God, instilling in another until it's then replicated in them and they have replicated in another. And not until then. Are y'all with me? Say amen. It's amazing and not so far-fetched to think that we live in this time where this can now happen. Because these two prophets indeed they are tormented, those who dwell upon the earth, the preaching of these two witnesses and their call to repentance was a torment for many. I want you to think about that for a minute. The reason people are celebrating is that the evil is so heightened during this season that the good news of Christ Jesus and him crucified, raised again, seated at the right hand of the Father, is as torment to the people. That's how evil. Why do I tell you that? Because you're seeing and hearing of more people that we know that are deconstructing their faith as we live now in this life. People that you've known that were raised up in church, sold out for Christ, are now not only pulling back and pulling away from the church, that, as if that should be enough if they just quietly bowed out and said, you know what, I'm just not going to go anymore. That's between them and the Lord. That's, that's the truth. But they don't stop there. They not only pull back, they pull back and they want to pull people with them. And the deconstruction of their faith has to be propagated, has to be talked about. It's on social media. People are, I mean, it's like, not only do, am I pulling away from the ecclesia, the body of Christ, which he tells us not to do. In fact, let's just do this for a minute. Why do we even need church? Because the truth of it is, it's, it's kind of like this. This is a terrible illustration, but maybe it'll insert at least some degree of understanding. How many Georgia Bulldog fans in the house? A few of you. All right, cool. Any Alabama? I don't even care. I don't even care. Anyway. So if you're going to watch a national championship ball game with Georgia Bulldogs, you can sit there and watch it at home. You absolutely can. But it's kind of interesting if you've ever been in the park. 
to be there live and to see a championship game unfold. Now, not everybody can go to the game, so what's the next thing you do? What's the next best thing? You get together with a bunch of your friends that also want to celebrate that game. And there's, there's, there's something different about watching it live, being a part with other like-minded people. There's something that's very uniquely unfolding in the body of Christ when we can get in the house and we can come together and we can see it unfold before our eyes together with like-minded people. It's different. And when you knew and when I knew it was different, it's when we couldn't do it anymore. Then we knew. And, and, and what, we have to, what we have to be mindful of is to not take that kind of moment for granted. But as the Hebrews writer says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together is the manner of some, watch this, and even the more is that day approaching. The day what? The day of the Lord. This is the time of urgency. And, and as he lays this out, this reviving of the two witnesses, look at 11 through 14. He says, now after the three and a half days, the breath of, the, uh, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. And the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember, remember what I told you on that last line. Remember I told you that these are going to be sequential and they're going to be very quick succession. It's going to be one right behind the other. I mean, just from the moment that you think, wow, it can't get any worse, it's going to get worse. And the fact that the people saw them resurrected... And he said, come up here, once again, just kind of spoke to the absoluteness of God's power. Now, look there in six, and we're not going to go through this again, but those of you who uh, were here with us last week, I'll just paraphrase, and then I'm going to jump to seven. You know, the, the, to me, we don't know who these two witnesses are, but there's, to me, I've, I've narrowed it down to three people. There's indication that it could be Moses. Moses was uniquely taken from this earth, but there was indication that he died as God took him up on that mountain and he allowed him to look out, but he told him he couldn't go into it because of his disobedience when he struck the rock the second time. But he did take him up to that high plateau and he looked over into the mountain, I guess it was Mount Nebo, and he looked over and he said, that, that's the promised land, that's what I promised you, that's where you should be trotting your feet now, but, and then of course he died, we talked about that, and then God buried him. But we know in the book of, was it Jude, where, where the, Satan is asking for Moses' body. Now, there's indication as to, to why that is. There's some that maybe thinks that he would create a, a shrine, if you will, and people would worship him. And, and then there's also indication because Moses was on the Mount of Transfiguration that maybe he's one of those, and, and maybe he is. Also, there's indication that because of the fact that some of the woes that are coming back upon them are things that he saw when he was the deliverer, the spokesperson, as they would be delivered out of Egypt. So I, I don't disagree. I think that's probably a good argument. The only caveat I would offer to that is there's only really two people in life in scripture that, that didn't die. Only two. And that was who? Enoch, who was walking with God, and then it says, and then he was not. He was walking with God, and he was not. 
He translated, right? He was here, he was gone. That's the greatest picture we have of what the rapture of the church, which means to be caught up, looks like. He's here, he's walking, he's living, moving, breathing, and then, and then he's out. Clothes drop to the ground, he's gone. And then, of course, Elijah, who was caught up into a chariot of fire, he's the other one. He, he, wasn't, he didn't die, he was caught up. Same words as used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I believe there's pretty good certainty if we had to give identity, which, again, it's not important to me that we know exactly who they are because the Scripture doesn't tell us. So at best, it's, it's conjecture. But I think it gives a good quality of conversation to say it's one of those three people. My personal opinion, it's not worth $2, but I'll tell you, I believe it's Enoch and I believe it's Elijah. That's what I think. Well, praise God. Me and Dustin are on the same page. I'll take it. But I do. I, I, that's what I think. Look at number uh, seven for me. Any comments about that, by the way? About the two witnesses, who they are, their identities, why we don't know what they're doing, why were they killed, why were they resurrected, anything. Awesome. Look at number seven, verse 15. The seventh trump finally sounds. Then it says, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And forever. And anytime you see that phrase forever and forever, there is not only a placement in grammatical syntax, there should be a dot, 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 which means and so on and so on and so on. So literal translation is and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. And it speaks, of course, of everlasting. And I wrote down in A, the seventh angel sounded, brought forth a profound silence as we saw in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. This is all in your notes where it says there was a silence for about a half an hour. Then the seventh trump initiates the joy at the inevitable resolution. Not at what's happening, but at the proclamation that he's making. And in the ancient Greek there in B, the grammar verb tense of have become indicates an absolute certainty about Jesus' coming, his reign, even before the fact is accomplished. And so when it says, he shall reign forever and forever, how can there be such joy? It's kind of like this. If, you, if you're in the time of, let's say, election, and the election happens, and your president or your mayor or your governor, the one you voted for, the one you believe in, the one you believe is going to change policy for greater effect, when that person is elected in, there's celebration, but they have yet to take office. The same is happening here. What they're celebrating is we see the resolution unfolding. It's already defined. It's happening. Now, it hasn't happened, but it's going to take place, so now we can celebrate because now they're seeing it unfold. And what does it say happens there in verse 16 and 17? And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. It says the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead and that they shall now be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. 
It says, we give you thanks. This thanksgiving isn't to thank God that he's already done it, but again, it's, it's, it's a praise of impending events that's about to happen. But then look what happens in B. But the nations were angry. Why? Because God's punishment matches the crime. There's nothing arbitrary about it. The nations are angry with God, and he responds with a total wrath. Now, I want you to understand probably one of the least talked about and accepted attributes of God's holiness. Now, I want, to make a, I want to make a question to you. I want to pose a question to you. And I suspect you have never heard this answer that I'm going to give you, ever. And it's something that God showed me, and I've never spoken it from a stage ever before. But I want you all to speak back to me for just a moment in the context of God's holiness. His holiness demands also a wrath, lest he would not be just. It's easy to talk about the love of God. It's easy to talk about the grace and the mercy and all of that. And we, we love it, and man, it preaches well. It does. It's a whole lot easier to communicate. And, and that's why you hear from some of you in this room, and what I'm about to say, you're gonna, it's going to register. Some of you who came up in the 60s, the 70s, and even in the 80s, when you went to church, you, you walked out have, having had your toes stepped on. And what we would say to that, we would, give a, we would give a commentary to that and something to this effect, that all my preacher preaches is hellfire and brimstone. That's, that's what we would say in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was a dynamic that paralleled the same thing that was going on in our culture. The civil rights movement, women's liberation, all the things that, that I mean, should have been taking place, hippie re revolution, the age of Aquarius. I mean, quite frankly, it was like a melting pot of just stuff that nobody really knew what to do with it. And so what happened is the church matched that step for step. So what did we preach? We preached that there's a payday someday. Hell, hell's coming. Fury. Many did that because people were writing books and saying, Jesus is coming back in 1984. So we got to do something. We got to get ready. So how do we do it? And, and I say this, please don't take this out of context, but this is what was said. The only way to save them is to scare the hell out of them, to get them to come to Christ. The hell that, per, 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 that persisted in their life, that drove them, that, 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 that the drugs, the, the Studio 54, all that was going on in our culture, the only way to save the generation from the hostility, from everything that was happening, is, is to, to preach that there's this judgment, this impending judgment. And what happened, though, with that is, quite frankly, the reverse. Churches were raising up everywhere, and they were saying, okay, the only way to win them is we've got to have more church. So what would we, what'd we do? We've got to have, and again, nothing wrong with it. I just want you to know where it came from. We're going to have Sunday school. We're going to have church. We're going to come, we're going to come back at like 3.30. We're going to have RAs. We're going to have GAs. We're going to have training union. We're going to have choir practice. We're going to have Sunday night. We're going to have Bible study. We're going to have visitation. We're going to, if we just get them in church every single night of the week, we can save them. And many of y'all did it, and I did too. The problem existed 
when those years came and passed and Jesus didn't come back and people got cynical. And then what people decided upon that was, you know what, I don't really need church. That didn't really help. People just felt like their toes were always stepped on. So then a world came up in the 90s and then there was something that started that was called Jesus music. And then you have people like um, Stephen Curtis Chapman and, and, and Amy Grant and people that were, were, were singing what, what now would be considered very modest, but it was in that time, it was like, oh, you can't do that. You have drums on a stage, you can't have lights, you can't have this. And they were like, they were putting it out there and Rich Mullins was writing at the time and the, his ragamuffin band, that's what they were called. And they would go from church to church. He'd show up in a t-shirt and flip-flops and, and, and plan to lead worship. And the pastors were throwing him out of the church because they were like, you gotta have on a suit. You gotta wear your best. I mean, surely that's in scripture somewhere, right? And it started pushing people away because people felt for the first time they started using this, they felt judged. They felt that, that the person had already cast judgment upon them because of the way they were dressed or the color of their skin or because this. And then, and, then, and then what happened is you would think at that moment, then there would be this big integration. But, but, but believe it or not, the line and the divide between white church, black church, Asian church, it, it got stronger. And people started saying, you know what? Maybe this Jesus music is something. So they, they changed the name of it. It became what's called contemporary Christian, CCM. People didn't really know what to do with that. There was something happened. The red books were now, they had been sung and had been played and there had been a pianist who was the only person who was on, a, on, the, on the payroll in the orchestra or there'd be an organist or what have you and, and then all of a sudden there's these new churches popping up and, and, and then for the first time there's this praise and worship. And, and, and then people started preaching Grace. The Grace Evangelical Society raised up and the Grace Evangelical Society started taking all the scriptures out of context and it's like if, if, if there's grace, you could live however you want to live. Grace has covered you. What the Bible says where sin uh, does abound, grace does much more abound. So the question they forgot to ask is the question he posed right after that scripture. If grace abounds more where sin does, then he says, but then should we keep on sinning? He said, forbid not. No, don't do that. No, because this grace that you're talking about as a license and a merit to live however you want to live is not grace at all. That's ignorance. Grace says you don't have to go on sinning. You, you now are liberated so you don't have to live by the sin anymore. You're, you're no longer in bondage of sin. You're no longer carrying the weight of that. You've been delivered. So what happened was wrath got thrown out the back door and everybody just needs to come in church and feel good. And then we lost a generation because there's, there's no one that's afraid. There's no one, this fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. They need to be afraid that there's a wrath to avoid, but there's a love to embrace. Hell is real, but heaven is real. And so, so now what we have found ourselves in is, is somewhat of, again, of a melting pot of like, so who, who are we? And, and what do we preach? And, and, and the ones who, you know, my son-in-law made a statement one time that rocked me to the core. He said, God is always big, but everything that's big is not always God. 
And, and, and what we have to understand is, is when he throws out verses like where two or three are gathered, we have to understand it can never be about putting butts in seats and filling up a church building and thinking God's in it. It's about preaching the gospel. And by preaching the gospel, you preach the whole counsel. Yeah, you preach the grace. Yeah, you preach the mercy. But you're going to preach that there's a hell to shun. And if you don't get it, there's wrath and there's no hope for you. And that makes people run. And at the end of the day, that's not between me and them. That's between me and the Lord, all I have and all we can do and all you can do is preach the truth. Because here's my question. Long, long, long preface to a question. I get it, but let me ask you the question. So what are we saved from? How many of you are saved? Somebody says you're saved. Praise God, I'm saved. What are you saved from? Say it. Just raise your hand and tell me. Judgment. Well, go ahead. Safe from yourself. Yeah, you're safe from your own volition, your own will. What do you think, uh, Dustin? Yourself? What else? Who said, what'd you say? Separation. Separation from God. That's good, yeah. Damnation? Absolutely. Whoever said that? I don't know who said that. Oh. Marilyn, anybody else? Yes, saved from God's wrath. That's right. What? From his what? From this body. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because this body is mortal. It has to put on immortality, as he said in Corinthians, right? And, that, and that's all these things are the things that I would say. But, but, but man, about, about three weeks ago, God, God just floored me. It was just me and him. And you know what he said to me? I've never heard this spoken before. And I'm going to say it, and it's going to take you a minute to swallow it. So if you disagree, argue with me next week. He saved me from his justice. Just think about that for a minute. Because I've never heard that. I've never read that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to say, oh, wow, you've come up with this new thing. No, I'm telling you, I never knew that. You might have heard it. You might have known it. I didn't know it. I've never said it. I've never preached it. Because if we look at this as a judicial rendering, and that's what it is. That's the wrath. That's being taken out of this body. That's judgment. That's flesh. That's all the stuff, Right? But if I just throw out there, you're, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then people say, if I'm not condemned, I'm going to live like I want to live. But the problem is, is you think because you're saved that you're innocent. You're not innocent, you're guilty. See? Childlike faith. Praise the Lord. That's what, she, that's what he said if y'all didn't know. Here's the thing. You have to place yourself in the courtroom of heaven to understand. It's appointed unto man once to die and then there's a judgment. Justice calls out from the garden and you're guilty. And, and, and it helps me to know this because then I don't walk around high-minded thinking I'm innocent. I'm guilty. And, and, and if I can even go one step further, I am born in iniquity, conceived in iniquity. I am an enemy of God. 
in my body. That's why there's a war going on with my flesh. Now, how many of you are saved? I mean, there you just go, well, I thought I was. I don't even know now. No, listen, same, same answer. How many of you are saved? Then the enemy can't have you. He cannot have you no matter what lie he has told you, no matter how far you go. If you're a child of the most high God, that is settled for eternity. However, just like the series we're in, who told you you were naked? The enemy was gonna, is going to lie to you. He's going to torment you. He's going to beat you up. He's going to lie about your kids. He's going to lie about your husband. He's going to lie about your wife. He wants you to be at enemy. He doesn't, people say he's here to steal your joy. He could care less if you're happy, joyful, sad, or broken. He just does not want you to be effective because you are a witness. A witness is not something that you do. It's something that you are. And if he takes from you your effectiveness, hey, I, let me just say this. I know some joyful people in this world, and they're lost as last year's Easter egg. They're lost, have no hope. And then I know people, hear me, and you do too, what I'm about to say scares me. And I'll say, I'll say it. I don't mean fear drives me. I'm just saying this moves me. Is I know people who are born again, washed in the precious blood of Jesus, and they're miserable. And they will never change another person for the glory of God as long as they live miserably. They live ineffective, ineffective. So why does he save me from justice? Because justice says the wages of sin is death. But what we have to understand and what should make us carry this thing, this torch of the light of the world that we are now to bear is that when, when justice called out, mercy answered. And he didn't just die for your sin, he died as it. So when I stand in the halls of judgment and know that there's a beam of seed and there's the great white throne, we stand before the beam of seed of Christ. But as we enter into that hall, we enter in, in our minds, in our faculties, guilty. But the Bible says that God has given all authority of judgment to the Son. And the Son also is my advocate. He's my attorney. I don't know if you've done the math to that yet, but you would probably be pretty good shape if you went to court and your attorney was also the judge. (laughs) If you could personify it, it may seem silly to you, but if you could personify it, it's basically in walks the judge and it's King Jesus and he stands high and lifted up. Isaiah 6. His glory is so profound There's no bench that can contain him. There's no heaven that can, it's just the glory fills the room. All of heaven arises. Maybe you fall to your face. I don't know what we do. I don't know what that looks like. And you know you're guilty. And again, if you give me a little bit of creative liberty here, because this is how I have to, this is how I have to fashion in my mind to live this thing called faith. 
is that I see him go all the way to the point of, of looking at me, not saying a word, but with those eyes that literally cut into my soul and he lifts the gavel, about to drop the gavel of guilt. But before he does it, he steps down, gets in my place, moves me to the side. He takes my guilt. And then I'm innocent. He saved me from justice because justice said I deserve death. But he died for me. He died as me so that I could have life. And I say all that to say, and that is what infuriates the enemy. Because hear me. Because his days are already told. They're numbered. He's already doomed. And since he's already doomed, and since he has no hope, and since he's read this and he knows this, then he's going to do everything he can to create or limit or prevent the opportunity for one more to get in the kingdom. He lost you. You're, you're, you're free. Hell can't have you. But what really, 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 and again, I'm using words that I don't want you to, I don't want you to take them that they're driving me. We have not been given the spirit of fear, but that doesn't mean we're not afraid. But what moves me, what provokes me, what invokes me, what causes something to rise up in me, is how many people are out there living as a Christian but living like hell. And not only should that scare them, but the fact that they have no burden, zero burden, to tell another person about Jesus. I don't know what to do with that other than to speak what the scripture says, which says you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. And the scripture also says in John's gospel that if there's a vine, there's a branch that is not bearing fruit, listen to the language here, it's cut off and thrown into the fire. Why why does it use that illustration if it weren't meant to be applicable to some metaphor? So how many people live as though in their mind they're saved because they said a prayer but they've never, ever, 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 ever lived as Christ? And, and, and it, it says in verse 19 that the temple of God was opened up in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. People have said, well, where's the Ark of the Covenant? It's right there. It's in heaven. That's what he says. It's right there. So all those people that are looking for it, they're wasting all their time. He says, and there was lightning and noises and there was an earthquake and a great hail. And, and it said that, the, I, I wrote down, the Ark refers to God's throne, but the place previously mentioned of where the resolution will come from. Does anybody remember Does anybody remember what the component of the 
ark was called where the blood was applied? That's right, the mercy seat. The blood of Jesus, it, it was true with the blood of a lamb, it's true with the blood of Jesus, was applied to the mercy seat of God, which is in heaven, right? It's also that, that piece of wood that was connected on the cross where the thieves and where Jesus stood, that, that little board that came out perpendicular, where they stood is called the mercy seat. Because what they would do is they would be like this, and they would push up on the mercy seat and take a breath. And then when they couldn't do it anymore, they would pull back down and their diaphragm would close together and they would die from basically asphyxiation. And the Ark of the Covenant I wrote down is the symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace on his people and inflicting vengeance upon his enemies. And I know we won't get into chapter 12 tonight, but that's the end of chapter 1. I'm in chapter 11. But I just wonder what it would take to build within us this urgency to for the first time in our life get excited about being a child of God. Talked to a lady today who said, She'd been praying for some things and she said, I don't know if my prayers are being answered. And I asked the question, qualify that. Why, why do you think they're not being answered? And I didn't really get an answer per se, but I think the answer, if I could be, take a little liberty with what I think she was thinking, is, is that maybe God wasn't responding in the timeline or the way in which she thought that he should. And I, think, I, I think that's merited, right? But what if what if God is preparing right now today to take us home Friday? What would your life look like? Today's Wednesday. What would it look like Thursday and Thursday night? I wonder for some of us, would we just be paralyzed with fear? Or would we be on the phone? Would we be running up down the streets telling everybody we could tell them about Jesus? Repent, repent. He's coming, he's coming. What do you think? Would anybody be willing to answer that and just throw out a, a thought? If you knew Jesus was coming Friday, what, what do you think people would do? What do you think you would do if you're willing to explore that in your own mind? What do you think you'd do? Anybody? Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at northridgethomaston.com.